Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template... With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Known fact about my guest today for decades, she has been one of the most respected journalists around. But a fun fact about Jennifer Griffin is that growing up as a teenager, she babysat for a kid on her block named Tommy Kale. So, Hamilton fans, I think we have Jennifer Griffin to thank for so much of the artistry that we've enjoyed over the years. But in all seriousness, for all of the news that she has reported in such a integrity-filled way. Welcome, Jennifer Griffin, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Jennifer Griffin. Jennifer is an American journalist who works as the chief national security correspondent at the Pentagon for Fox News. Prior to working there, Griffin started her career reporting for the Sowetan newspaper in Johannesburg, South Africa, covering Nelson Mandela's prison release and South Africa's transition from apartheid. She then lived in Islamabad and Moscow and Jerusalem, among other places all around the globe. For the past decade, she's also hosted the Wounded Warrior Experience. She was recently awarded the Transatlantic Leadership Network 2022 Freedom of the Media Gold Medal Award for Public Service. She also received the Medal of Honor Foundation's Award for Excellence in Journalism. I could list so many awards and so many things, not to mention an incredible book she has written with her husband about their life story covering wars and all sorts of situations all over the globe. She also has an incredible family that she's raised, a daughter I got to meet, and I am so honored to have the extraordinary Jennifer Griffin on the podcast. Hello, my friend. Hello. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thank you, Alana. You are so welcome. We were talking before we started about the last time we saw each other. Um, We were overlooking the Atlantic Ocean from a really beautiful spot on Martha's Vineyard. And when I look at our backdrops, we are both very far from that 
natural. It's after Labor Day and we are back to reality. And I am sitting in the Pentagon right now. <laughs> exactly. Which really is a windowless um, room. <laughs> yes. But filled with maps and um, really important facts and information about the world that we live in. And so many of us come to you for fair and factual reporting uh, when we go to watch your uh, journalistic expertise. Um, but before we get to your extraordinary present day career, something I would love to do, if you don't mind, is to travel back in time with Jennifer to sort of what was life like when you were a younger person, pre-professional? Where did you grow up? Who was in your home? What were your early, early influences um, that maybe were the little breadcrumbs that led to you sitting in the Pentagon office today? Well, it's really interesting that you should ask. I'm sitting not very far from where I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. And if you ask about my influences, I would say that my mom is a big influence of mine. She was an extraordinary mother and her name is Carolyn Griffin. And she started 30 years ago, a theater in Alexandria called Metro Stage. She's uh, was one of the founders and is now the artistic uh, producing director and what she did for me when I was growing up, I grew up on an amazing street. I, I was thinking back about, about uh, my childhood home. And it's on this street in Alexandria that if you were to go three doors down, uh, uh, my next door neighbor, and I was a, a young teenage babysitter for Tommy Kale, who ended up uh, on Broadway, the producer of Hamilton, as many people know, Lynn Manuel's Miranda's, you know, right hand, good friend. And he was just a kid running around the neighborhood. And I was, uh, we were friends with his family and I babysat Tommy. And years later, when Hamilton took off and, um, and you know, you couldn't find a ticket, uh, he was kind enough to give myself and my son, who was eight at the time, uh, house seats, and we sat next to Steven Spielberg. So that Thank was you. that's sure. my claim to that's my claim to fame. Uh, but but that street was also really interesting because two doors past Tommy. So Tommy was three doors down, two doors past that um, on uh, Maple Street was uh, my best friend, Maura Mulroney, whose brothers Dermot and Kieran Mulroney became Hollywood uh, screen actors and stars. Dermot Mulroney, of course, in my best friend's wedding. We, again, were punk kids who were, were running around the neighborhood playing capture the flag. And, and uh, Dermot was the older brother that we would pick on and uh, sneak up upon. And then to the other side of my mom's house, and she still lives in the same house in Alexandria that I grew up in. Uh, she, it, two doors on the other side of her, like at the end of that street, was Chip Esten, who when we were growing up was Chip Puskar. But Chip Esten, of course, starred in Nashville, the wildly successful television series. He plays in Nashville uh, guitar and, and comes back to the Birchmere in Alexandria and plays all the time. So it really was, if you look back at that little street, um, Nor Northview Terrace and Maple Street in Rosemont, um, near the Masonic Temple in Alexandria, Virginia, it was quite a street. That is Unbelievable. I mean, I really want to be invited to the next block party. I feel like I would <laughs> I have. I want to go yes. back to that block party. Like, the next 10 years of podcast exactly. episodes are fulfilled exactly. right there. So obviously you were um, a theater kid in terms of the, the literally living in backstage at a theater with your mom. Were you a performer at all? So it's interesting. I never was a performer. I was never an actor, but we had, were surrounded by theater and we, the, again, my mom is really inspirational. I always say she's, she's sort of the best one woman show. She's also my main critic. So she, uh, she doubles as many things, but the, you know, every time I would do a live shot, once I started in television, you know, I wasn't really trained in television. She would call me afterwards and give me notes. So I had her notes and, and, and I knew if she really, it's been a rarity that she didn't have a long list of notes of 
things that uh, I, that I could do better in my presentation. But she was really amazing in terms of encouraging me as a journalist. She had wanted to be a journalist when she was younger. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in high school, I started uh, writing and writing for the local newspaper. Uh, but we also would joke that when we would go to her theater, sometimes I would show up and I would, of course, bring my friends to pack the seats and, and to help her uh, fill the theater in Old Town Alexandria. And I would see my iron bed on stage as a prop or suddenly we would have, you know, I would be, I would recognize, we recognized a lot of the props growing up, certainly. Um, And then when I was in college, I I went to Harvard and I took a, decided to take a year off. It was the 1980s into the eighties and apartheid was still in place in South Africa. And I decided to take a year off and go work for uh, the only, the main black newspaper in the country, which was the Sowetan at the time. And there was a, a professor at Harvard, who was a a Neiman fellow and a a journalist and editor. And he said, if I came down, I could intern there. And so this was a great adventure, but always having my mom as my, my great supporter and uh, mentor, she, she said, oh, by the way, I need you to go to the market theater, which of course is where, where Athel Fugard and all the protest theater was being done at the end of a part, you know, during apartheid. She said, I need you to go in Joburg down to the market theater and see what's playing because I need, you know, I need some plays to bring back. And she had been an early, I mean, she, she was a child of the sixties and, you know, we grew up with, you know, images of her, you know, marching in the 60s. And and when she started her theater, she, you know, very early on brought Athel Fugard to Alexandria, Virginia and to Washington, D.C. She, I remember the play. It was Blood Knot. And and fast forward, you know, 30 years later, her in 2019, she produced uh, Athel Fugard's probably last uh, play or most recent play, uh, The Painted Rocks at Revolver Creek. And so she's won Helen Hayes awards, but it was always that sense of, of, oh, you're going, you're going to, she never questioned why I would be going to South Africa at that time. She always encouraged me to go deeper into a culture um, and the kind of plays that she put on and the social commentary in her theater. She wasn't a journalist, but there was an element of social commentary and and reportage in many of the shows she she chose. And so, you know, I think it's it's really amazing to see someone follow their dream the way she did and build something. She built it from scratch and it's still to this day, you know, they're they're in the final stages of rebuilding the theater in a new location in Old Town. But she really inspires me because she's very passionate about what she does. And family was always very important. I have a a number of siblings and we were always very close, even though uh, I was the oldest and there were 19 years between me and my youngest sibling and they were, we were all from the same parents, but, but we have always been close. And in fact, my youngest sister, the 19 year old went into the Peace Corps and went down to South Africa and lives on a 11,000 acre sheep farm in South Africa right now and married someone she met in the Peace Corps. So a very interesting journey, a lot of roads. It all kind of started in South Africa with that covering of Mandela, uh, Mandela's release from Robben Island. And that really is where I got hooked and where I met my husband, Greg Myrie, who's also a national security correspondent for he's he worked for AP for 20 years and for the New York Times. And then and now he's the national security correspondent for National Public Radio, NPR. And we've had this incredible journey together. We have three kids together. Two of them were born in a war zone during the Intifada in Israel. Um, I wore a flak jacket while I was pregnant and covered suicide bombings. Um, And we moved to, we spent our honeymoon in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, We lived in Islamabad together. And we both have just been absolutely passionate about Uh, We started off covering conflicts in Africa, famines and wars, but we moved on to we just happened to be living in Islamabad when, you know, during the rise of the formation of the Taliban, when uh, Osama bin Laden in the 90s, we're talking 1994. So long before 9-11, we were living and covering Afghanistan and uh, and Pakistan. 
And that arc of our, our life in the Middle East, you know, ended up in Nicosia, Cyprus, and then eventually Moscow before moving to Israel. Um, we, we have had a front row seat to some of the most historic transitions. And now I sit here in the Pentagon and, and you know, I'm broadcasting just down the hall from where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs sits and the tank and where they have the meetings just down below me is the op center, the National Military Command Center, where they're seeing every place the US military is involved overseas, they're watching right now. And it's it's been an incredible career. I love, I've loved, uh, you know, I can't think of a more exciting uh, trajectory. And it all started with that trip to South Africa on a whim as a, as a sophomore at Harvard, you know, taking a year off from college. So when you were growing up, obviously your proximity to Washington DC meant that not only were you, you know, watching the news at night, you were living in the place where so much of, of the decision-making that affects the entire globe was happening. Um, obviously your mom is producing theater, political theater among you know the different types of, of genres of, of plays that she's putting on. I don't know if your father was, a what, what did your father do? So my father was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer in Washington, D.C. Okay. He was not involved in government or um, uh, and and so he sadly died uh, when my second daughter was born 20 years ago okay. from a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he died very young at the age mm -hmm. of 50. And and so cancer has been a big theme in our family's life. My personal life, I was diagnosed at age 40 uh, with a triple negative breast cancer, stage three, and had, uh, you know, a year, 17 rounds of chemo, a year of treatment while my son, my son was, uh, was nursing at the time. He was six months old when I was diagnosed. So cancer has been a very big part of our lives. A lot of, we certainly seem to have some uh, genetic break. Um, mm -hmm. My mom has survived two forms of cancer. We're, we're all, there are many survivors in our family, but I'm very involved in cancer research and raising money to prevent cancer. I'm a, a board member of the Prevent Cancer Foundation. And, and I find some of the innovations in terms of how they're treating cancer, very exciting. And I, um, I, you know, very inspired, but it certainly has been very personal for me because right. it really, really has affected our family. I lost, you know, my brother at age, you know, 42 to, to, uh, cancer. And, and it's, it's, it's been, uh, a big part of our life, but a big part of also the resiliency that mm -hmm. our family has, has realized that, you know, you take nothing for granted and you kind of right. live life, to, you live life to the fullest. Right. And talk about living life to the fullest and sort of standing on the brink of safety and danger every moment. Um, I guess what I was going to ask you is this sort of, um, passion for or or somewhat comfort level with being in incredibly dangerous situations were you um a risk taker as a younger person was you funny you always, were you a roller coaster person like <laughs> no <laughs> no the funny thing is i'll tell you what i was and i i think i was a product of of title nine okay. and and i played sports at a competitive level um uh, I played field hockey. I was a fierce field hockey player. I played lacrosse. I played soccer from a young age on a competitive team. And that was where I learned to compete on those mm -hmm. fields. And the team sports was really important to me. So I, I went to a small girls school called St. Agnes, an Episcopal girls school in, in Alexandria. But we had, and we had a graduating class of 50, but, you know, we had a number of my really good friends were all American lacrosse players in, in high school. And this, this was from a tiny little girl's school. And so we were fierce and my friends, you know, I think going to an all girls school at that time, we were, we were pretty fierce and on, on the field. And I think when I did take off for uh, South Africa, I really don't know why I did. <laughs> I really don't know. I'm not a risk taker, but in hindsight, I was, I guess at that age, you, you know, I was 20 years old. You really, you, you don't fully understand the danger of what you're doing. And, you know, I was, you know, a single young 
white female in the townships alone most of the time uh, covering the violence in the townships and, and traveling with, you know, at, sometimes I'd get picked up in the middle of the night by, by gun runners from, you know, the Inkata who were taking me out to Zululand to see, you know, what was happening in terms of the conflict between the ANC, uh, which was, you know, just legalized by FW de Klerk. And, and I didn't think much of it. And frankly, I look back and sometimes ask my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, why did you let me do those things? Why? And he's like, you think I could have stopped you? <laughs> and, and in fact, he tells a story about when I did finally graduate from Harvard and I flew down to South Africa to be with him. I took some money that my dad gave me for graduation. At the time, it seemed like a lot of money. It was uh, about $1,500. And that was supposed to be launch me in my freelancing career as a journalist. And Greg Myrie, my husband, he had just been assigned by AP to fly to Mogadishu because it was the year before the US troops were sent there. There was a famine and he was sent. And remember, this is still 1992, uh, summer of 92, no email, no uh, cell phones. We were working as journalists where you had to get to a fax machine, a telex uh, to send messages. So once he took off and said, hey, wait for me, I'll be back. Um, I sort of stewed for about a week and then used the money my dad gave me to buy a ticket to Nairobi. There were no international flights into Mogadishu because there was too much gunfire. It was a civil war taking place. That's why the famine was, was occurring. And flew in on a small UNICEF plane. Originally, I went to the airport in Nairobi and had to negotiate with the uh, the cot, the drug dealers who were, you could pay your weight in cot and they to offset the load on the plane and they would fly you into Mogadishu. I was negotiating at one end of the airport for that. And at the other end of the airport, UNICEF was flying a couple of Canadian journalists and they, they came and offered me a, a flight into Mogadishu. But that's how I started as a free Lancer was in the days before Black Hawk Down, the, the months and you know prior to the U.S. military being sent into Somalia, which really, if you look at the arc of my career and covering terrorism and bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, uh, that's where it really all kind of started. We didn't realize it at the time, but Al-Qaeda was moving in there. Uh, bin Laden was based up in Sudan. And so, you know, some of those people taking pot shots at the U.S. military would later go on to form Al-Qaeda. When you were a young person, you know, when you were a high school student before, before college, which you were a journalism major, correct? Were you already focused no, on that or no? But, so um, Harvard didn't have a journalism major. I was on the Crimson, which the Harvard Crimson was mm -hmm. almost like a full-time job. And, yeah. and um, in fact, um, Susan Glasser, who is now with The New Yorker, was my comp. Uh, uh, she put me through the, the my paces and was my editor at the Crimson. Oh, wow. So we're friends from way back, yeah. way back when. And you know, it was a very interesting group of, of, um, of young journalists who did go on to, to do some very interesting things. So were you a kid who was reading the newspaper every day? Were you a news junkie? I mean, what you have ended up covering and the specificity of military operations and being able to not just speak the language of what's going on in every country around the world and understanding the players, but then the deep Minutia is not the right word. The intricacies of of military um, lingo, as it were. Tell me, like, is it is it just that one thing led to another, and suddenly you're just absorbing it because you're doing it, or was that lane always specifically of interest to you? Well, I think I did grow up reading newspapers because my mom. Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> so we, we had my mom. Yeah. Basically because of my mom. Yeah. Um, so I, but did I know that this was going to be the path? Not at all. And it was taking that risk, uh, leaving Harvard, going to South Africa, because I met a person on campus who was intriguing, a visiting you know, newspaper editor from South Africa at an interesting time. It, it, it was that backing into then suddenly landing and meeting up for, with a group of uh, 
photographers and journalists who I came with a list of names of people to reach out to, but I really didn't know anybody. And those war photographers ended up becoming, you know, winning Pulitzer Prizes for their, their shots in the townships, uh, Greg Marinovich, their, their stories, the, the, the group of photographers who were down there at that time ended up writing a book called The Bang Bang Club. And they would go out on dawn patrol and, and see what was going on. And there would be dead bodies from the night before. And I would ask to tag along and I would ride along with them. Uh, another one of the, the so-called members of the Bang Bang Club who were, you know, this was for uh, photo journalists who were very close at the, during that period. Uh, one ended up taking the Pulitzer Prize winning photo of the, the vulture and the starving child in Ethiopia. He ended up, Kevin Carter ended up uh, killing himself years later because he felt such guilt and was racked with so much pain from having, from that photo and winning an award for something when he got criticism for why didn't you help the child? And yet, you know, this conflict, it was so, I, I, so much was happening so quickly. I could have gone, if if I hadn't gone to South Africa and got caught up with the end of apartheid and the changes that were happening there, the historic changes, I probably would have somehow made my way to Eastern Europe and, to the, and been there when the wall fell. I, I didn't choose that path, but it is interesting that all these years later, we have the, the by being in conflict zones where American military eventually had to deploy, whether it was Somalia or uh, the Middle East or Afghanistan, uh, I backed into that. I was not I was not a journalist who started off her career embedded with the U.S. military, but after 16 years overseas covering conflicts and being sort of in parallel with where the U.S. military was eventually sent or was operating, I had a comfort and an understanding and a field reporting sense from working with, I was very lucky because I really inherited, because Greg was was uh, an AP reporter, we had a whole network of stringers and fixers and people that were trusted locals who were amazing, who all showed me the ropes over the years. And so just by showing up, it's that old Woody Allen adage. I I, I found myself in uh, in these kind of war zones and covering conflict and being comfortable. It's like a, a frog; you turn up the heat little by little, and you're comfortable in that zone. If I thought of after graduating from college, hey, I'm going to fly into a war zone, I never would have done that. That didn't make sense. Right. But then, but then when I came back to the states, when the the reason I came back to the states, Fox sent me home because. One, two of my colleagues had been kidnapped in the Gaza Strip, and I had been involved in trying to get them released, meeting with Hamas and other leaders, uh, militant leaders, in very, very dodgy circumstances down in Gaza. And I kind of got to the point, I had two young, we had two young daughters at the time. I had, you know, you know, I had carried my breast pump to Gaza to meet with Hamas and interview leaders there and, and found myself, you know, stuck down there when suicide bombings occurred in Jerusalem um, and having to get home. I was tired. Mm -hmm. It was two, the it was uh, end of the summer of two thousand and six. The Lebanon, uh, the Israel war with Lebanon. Uh, we had worked, you know, day and night covering that. The rockets coming into northern Israel. We were posted up underneath the rockets where they were coming in, broadcasting. And then our colleagues were my Fox colleagues were kidnapped in Gaza, and I was just exhausted. I was yeah. tired, and the Middle East, yeah. you know, I was probably suffering from some delayed processing of all that. I had been through, I'd just kind of been running on adrenaline for a long time. Even as a new mother, I just went, my dad died after my second daughter, Amelia was born. And, and I asked to go back to work because it was just easier to cover the intifada than to process and your that. feelings. Yeah. So when, I, when, yeah. when Fox chose to put me at the Pentagon, it was mostly because they didn't know what to do with me. And, mm -hmm. and I did, you know, and frankly, I arrived at the Pentagon with kind of disdain for the reporters who were based stateside, who were not in the field. I kind of felt like it was, this was not a legitimate post and, and being, and traveling with the military seemed like a cop-out because we always avoided 
you know, embedding with any, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of the outliers who the, the correspondents that I grew up with who were out there and doing really great work, they would have scoffed at being embedded with. Is that because there's a feeling of they're protected? There's like some cushion protecting them. They're not real field reporters. Yeah. Maybe you're being spoon fed, Mm -hmm. uh, information you right. want to be independent it would you would lose your independence you want to talk to the get the real story now what we realized as time went on and what i certainly realized sitting in the pentagon 15 years later having been a reporter here now and and i i very much uh appreciate the benefit of having both uh kinds of journalists because to be here embedded in the Pentagon and to know what the thinking is and to be able to ask the pointed questions, having had field experience, allows me to bridge that world. And there is a point in time where, you know, I look at a lot of our friends who either uh, were blown up overseas covering or kidnapped or died. And, you know, I feel very lucky that I was able to have that life and then move into this kind of reporting. And, you know, back when the Ukraine conflict started, um, I had vowed, you know, that, okay, I'm not, I'm not covering wars anymore. This is not, you know, I've, I've, I've dodged death with cancer. I am too old. I have three children who, you know, the older you get, the more you say, wow, the music stopped and we grabbed a chair and, and not all of our colleagues were so lucky. And, and so, but when the Ukraine conflict started, it was an, an interesting turn of events because, again, I thought, OK, I can quarterback this from the Pentagon. I have a lot of experience because of the time we lived in Moscow and I covered the end of the Yeltsin era and the appearance of Putin at the very end when we were there. And we knew I knew what Putin was capable of because mm-hmm. we had covered the Chechen war. We we uh, had been in Moscow during the the apartment bombings when when people when it turned out later we learned that the fsb the uh, successor to the kgb under putin's leadership used that as a pretext to go into chechnya i knew what putin was capable of i also am a student of disinformation and uh, know how how information how the russians have been infiltrating our information space for a long time. And so I thought I could quarterback this from from the Pentagon and I was we were getting incredible briefings. I was uh, you know on the front row asking the questions and I was working with our teams in Ukraine. But then on March 14th all everything changed because our colleagues were blown up uh, by uh, were struck in the vehicle they were traveling in um, a very beloved cameraman that I had worked with for years, uh, Pierre was killed instantly and as was a young uh, Ukrainian stringer uh, who I didn't know and hadn't worked with but who who had her life cut short and then Benjamin Hall um, who was our State Department correspondent and who had just arrived in Kiev he was uh, traumatically injured, uh, lost um, a leg and, and and was fighting for his life and was missing. And because of my position here at the Pentagon and because of work I had done over the years with a group of veterans that during the Afghan pullout a year ago formed a group called Save Our Allies, I was in a position to be able to um, to reach out to save our allies. And they had some incredible former special operators and former Green Berets who ran to the fire, found Benjamin Hall, got him out of the military hospital while the Russians were still in Kyiv at the time, at great risk to themselves, um, got him out safely. And I managed to work with the, the Pentagon to meet them at the border. The 82nd Airborne uh, transported them to, to Benjamin Hall to Landstuhl and the US military um, have basically, thanks to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and permission to, because I knew John Kirby for many years, um, I asked him to help and he happened to be sitting in my booth where I'm sitting right now when the call came in and we learned that they had been injured. So, you know, the good news is Benjamin Hall is alive. He survived. Sadly, Pierre and Sasha did not. But but it drew me back into the Ukraine conflict in a way. I traveled out to Ukraine in, um, in a late in April to 
uh, deliver some medical supplies to the doctors who saved Benji and also to thank the team who had rescued him. And when the Russians pulled out of Kiev, I, I had that, unfortunately, that siren call again of, I want to be there. I want to be the one to report this and, and was among you know, the first wave of journalists to go into Bucha and to document some of the atrocities there. Outside. And so it's, it's been a really complicated year. And in fact, if I talk too much about it, I'll probably get emotional. Um, but, you know, between the Afghan withdrawal, which we just, you know, had the one year anniversary of, I was deeply involved, not only in reporting that, but also in, um, helping uh, a large number of uh, translators and their families and women journalists and women lawmakers. I helped coordinate with some of the groups like Save Our Allies, like Operation Task Force Pineapple, and helped them help some of these people get them on planes out of Africa. Afghanistan. And then fast forward, the same group of people I worked with in Afghanistan end up saving the life of my colleague, Benjamin. So it's been, you, a, it's been quite an arc of a year. Jennifer, <laughs> you know, it's, it's incredible because I was thinking about how journalists, reporters, and, you know, whether they're on camera in studio or, or in the place where the conflict is happening, are asked to somehow present the information to us without emotion, right? And I think so much about, you know, I'm an actress, like my job is the opposite. My job is to find a way to feel emotion no matter what, even if on a night I don't feel like it, I have to find a way to tap back into it. Um, and I think so much about sort of all of the places you've been and, and you talked about sort of coming home the stress, the exhaustion sort of hitting you finally and your your parent corporation saying, come home, we're gonna, we're gonna put you on the bench for a minute. And of course, in your case, the bench is so not the bench. It's just there are no bullets flying literally above you and you're not wearing a flak jacket. But but what what do you do? Um, you wrote a book, I'm sure that was cathartic and sort of writing things down and journaling as a journalist as well, how important that is. How do you handle, and I'm sure it's different for everyone in your field, how do you handle sort of the, the human carnage that you witness, the personal relationships that you develop with people on every side of every story, the human stories, right? Where does that all go? How is that handled? I think what, I think you're right that we've been taught as journalists that we have to be neutral observers and not channel that emotion. And if I think back to what I think does actually um, define me as a journalist, it's that I didn't lose that humanity and the ability to channel the emotion and even get a little overwhelmed with the emotion at times. There were two couple of key moments where I did, and I cried on air. And it, it, I was, you know, called my bosses after and apologized profusely. But, you know, it was because I had I was covering suicide bombings while I was pregnant, right. and so you had the emotions of seeing children and overturned baby strollers and human beings who were just, you know, moms and, and being a mother covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict really allowed me to not only connect with people on both sides of the conflict, because both sides had mothers and families and, and children being killed, uh, it, people brought me in in a way that was different because I think I was, a, I mean, I was really pregnant at times covering that conflict. And, 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 I did get overwhelmed with emotion. And I think I channeled that into really powerful storytelling. No, people will never, one of my bosses never forgets when I sat down with the mother of a suicide bomber shortly after a attack in Jerusalem. And I myself was pregnant at the time and, and talking mother to mother, it, it was a quite a piece of television. Being a mother and being inside broadcasting live with some of the early technology that allowed us to broadcast live, 
in a Jewish settler's home in the Gaza Strip after Ariel Sharon has called for the settlers to be removed by force by the Israeli military and broadcasting live as a mother is holding her child and being pulled out uh, by an 18-year-old female soldier who's weeping. That's what makes my reporting different is I go there. I do go there emotionally. When the tsunami happened in Thailand and I could get there faster than my colleagues from the US because I was in Israel, Mm -hmm. I was there within 24 hours when they were still literally, and I exaggerate not, pulling bodies out of the trees up the coast of of, uh, Phuket uh, and, and that Christmas and New Year's when we were standing in front of walls of missing, you know, having gone through all the morgues and looked looking for uh, tourists who had been killed and families and trying to connect families. I stood in front of that wall and all you could remember was, you know, there, it's the flashback to 9-11 with all the missing faces and the people looking for their family members. Like it, Those moments of pure exhaustion as a reporter they, they, that's why people tune in because you are their eyes and ears. You are the witness, you're bearing witness. If you have a wooden, uh, my delivery may not be perfect on air. My, I may not be a trained television correspondent, but if you can still tap into that humanity and storytelling, I think that's why, that's why the families of, of military uh, of, of military veterans or those who have been injured or those who are still serving overseas. That's why they tune into my reports because I tell the human stories right. and I connect to that emotion. I've been involved for years, but you that was a long-winded way of saying, how do you process this? Well, I can't distinguish between, is my PTS from covering a tragedy for as long as I have or from my uh, cancer? Because I think being a young mother with a nursing baby going through cancer treatment, being bald and chemo and thinking you may not survive. Uh, most cancer survivors that I know have a, the similar, I, I recognize them because they're very similar to the wounded veterans that I have worked with over the years up at Walter Reed. I got involved. It was a little hard for me in those initial, when I came out of my cancer treatment to work with cancer survivors. And so I channeled a lot of that energy into working with wounded veterans. Mm-hmm. And it was during the surge, we, the walls, the halls of Walter Reed were packed with the traumatic brain injuries and the families, the young wives and, and children who were up there. And our family has been very involved in that. That was very cathartic to me, telling their stories, telling my own stories. I kept a blog through my cancer treatment and continued talking about my cancer treatment during treatment. That helped me a lot. So I always tell people who are going through trauma to document it, journal it, and talk about it. Tell the story while you can, because it's so important to your healing. But what I also did during cancer treatment is I started doing Pilates. And I use Pilates every morning, or I I did yoga for a period of time. I exercised while I was getting chemo. So I, before my chemo uh, session, I did two things. I would go for a run if I could, or a walk beforehand to get as much oxygen in. I did a lot of Pilates to build up my strength for my mastectomy. And I've continued doing that. And then you asked about the book. Uh, the book that my husband and I wrote was about our time covering uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was called This Burning Land. He made me write that while in a chemo chair. He would sit across from me and say, okay, we're going to talk about, you know, he would recall. And uh, and at first I was like, Greg, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk right now. I just want to focus on, you know, I just want to feel sorry for myself. (laughs) And fair enough. And he would sit just far enough away that I couldn't strangle him. And he would he would have his laptop and we would sit at Georgetown University Hospital and I would get my chemo and it would be an all day affair usually. And 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 we wrote chapters of the book. And I'm very proud of that book because he did the bulk of the the work, but but it was our joint story of being and your joint memories. Work and working for two very different news organizations, but really covering uh, a conflict that we both came away uh, and, and raising two, two daughters during that period, very young daughters, um, 
it's 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 the great achievement of my life that that I am not only still married to Greg and we are happily married and and that uh, I have three wonderful children who are um, my daughter just landed in Prague yesterday for a, a semester abroad and the other one uh, was in France all year you know painting and they are adventurous and they are fierce. My son is a lacrosse player and, and I met him fierce. and he won best camper I believe <laughs> best so, athlete of camp yes for this. So they are all winning in really big ways. I just want to talk about that for a minute because, you know, for a long time, and this is during the Clinton years, there were, you know, James Carville and, and Marley Matt, just sort of this idea of, of how can a couple who, who have such um, opposing political philosophies be married? In, in your case, uh, Fox has a reputation for being on the right, and your husband has worked at the New York Times and NPR, uh, organizations that are considered very liberal. Just because someone works for a certain organization doesn't even mean that's their own political, you know, what they do in the voting booth is very different than what, what their corporation may may be um, connected to. But do you guys, is there humor between the two of you about this? Um, I don't know. Can you speak to it a little bit? Huge humor. And it's, first of all, it's really easy because we are probably to, well, we are not opinion journalists. We are not of the, you know, we're not on the opinion page of either of our news organizations. Right. Um, uh, we work for two very different organizations, no doubt. And we get a lot of heat for that. And we often uh, find ourselves in situations, whether it was in Israel or here in, in Washington, D.C. or in St. Louis, where my husband's from, we will find ourselves in different crowds and we can tell very quickly where how someone votes. I've often said we could just take a van across the country and I could tell you exactly, I could pull uh -huh. and tell you how people are going to vote based on who recognizes either of us. Greg will walk into the school where, where my kids uh, go to school and all the teachers will say, oh, I would recognize your voice anywhere. And right. I realize that they have never watched a day of Fox um, and, <laughs> and they listen to NPR or we will be somewhere. We'll land in St. Louis and people will come up to the airport and the kids will say, Oh, there's one of mom's fans. We're in mom and, country. And, yeah. and, and so, so we have, as a family, we, we have taught the children that a, keep your politics to yourself because we're journalists and we really want to preserve our ability to uh, to tell stories and not lose half of our audience because mm -hmm. we really believe in facts and we really believe in uh, straight news. We're kind of a dying breed <laughs> and, and there are not a lot of people who, uh, you know, unfortunately that's not what's rewarded these days in, in our, particularly on television. Um, so it's, it's more that it's been, uh, it's, it's not hard in what's hard in terms of sleeping with, uh, the enemy, if you will, or the competition is that we cover national security and we're competitive. And if we have a scoop or I'm talking to a source, I'll often say to him, I mean, our pillow talk is pretty interesting. And a lot of it is, um, is off the record because I'll turn to him and say, that's off the record <laughs> or, and, or I'll say, you can't, you know, you, he can overhear my phone calls uh, if I'm taking a call. And, but and he I'm can't saying, use it for his story. But no, he can't. I was like, you can't, you know, that's not a confirmation just because you heard it through my side of the bed <laughs> on the phone. So that's more where we have laughs and and maybe some maybe even some tension um, mm -hmm. over um, over a scoop, uh, particularly given the sensitivities of our national security beats. But politics we really stay as far away from it as we can and um and that's why i remain at the pentagon because um i love covering the military and i love going deep and pulling together our years of overseas living and and the experience we have in countries that unfortunately the u.s military is still involved with yeah i mean every place you lived is still so front and center in our you know, it's all front page news. Um, before I let you go, and it seems hysterical for me to ask you a little known fact about yourself since A, you are all facts, and B, 
you have revealed and shared so much. So one thing is you have to promise me to come back because I have scratched the surface of your extraordinary life. And my listeners are so lucky to get to hear sort of the behind the scenes. I think so much about how you had to cover wars all over the world. And then in recent history, this sounds so corny, but you've been dealing with a war within your own body and the, the, the metaphor is not lost on me. Uh, it, it's not just words, it's really a true thing. And you've done it with such grace and, and generosity in terms of sharing your version of this disease and your journey with it with so many people. Uh, I'm so grateful you have such a large platform because you are just so truly inspirational. And I know we've spoken in person that, that there's all of this hopeful um, research going on and, and possible medical interventions for our future. So I really would love to have you come back. But until then, A, um, thank you. And B, is there one more little known fact you can share other than babysitting for Tommy Kale, which really you had me at Tommy. Um, <laughs> I know I, that's one of my proudest. Um, <laughs> why? I mean, Hamilton would not exist had you not been a babysitter in Mr. Well, I don't know if life. I was such a great babysitter and I was not exactly formative, but I'm very proud to have known him when he was young and he was a great kid and, and it continues to be inspirational. Sure. Um, um, little known fact, I think if you, if, uh, if I go back to my cancer, uh, diagnosis, um, it might be interesting to note that, that the night, the day that I was, uh, diagnosed, I'm a big, uh, rock music fan. And so I've always gone to concerts and I've been a concert goer my whole life and um, started at the 930 club in Washington, DC back in the day when I was, you know, way underage. And, <laughs> and, um, and so the day that I was diagnosed and it was a pretty shocking diagnosis, um, I had tickets that night to you two <laughs> who were in town. And I, you know, I think a lot of people might've said, okay, I'm going to sit this one out. But I um, called my friends and said, nope, we're going. And I went to you two that night with my sister who was here helping me take care of the baby and uh, went to you two. And then nine months later, when uh, I had come through my rounds of chemo and double mastectomy and radiation, um, uh, a friend of mine who worked at the State Department was at a dinner with Bono and asked him to, to sign, um, told her the story that I had gone and that he, you know, that had been sort of on my playlist during chemo and, and helped uh, pull me through. And I got a nice signed sort of uh, note from Bono uh, basically suggesting to walk on and, uh, but it was, it was, he, he signed a picture of the Joshua tree, um, album and, and I have that framed in my bedroom. Jennifer Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What an honor it was to have this time with you today. Thank you, Alana. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.